Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, after burning nearly a million acres over three months across Northern California, the Dixie Fire reached 100% containment just last week. The Dixie is the first wildfire in state history to burn from one side of the Sierra Nevada to the other and the state's second largest. It left in its wake destruction of the historic town of Greenville. And it left concerns about California's ability to stop small fires from becoming megafires. We look at the lessons of the Dixie Fire and the news this week that the federal government is investigating PG&E for its role in it, which the utility says could amount to more than a billion dollars in losses. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. PG&E announced this week that it's the subject of a federal investigation of its possible role in causing the Dixie Fire, the second largest in California history. The utility also says it's likely to amass more than a billion dollars in losses from the fire, which burned nearly a million acres. For more on PG&E, we're joined first by Dale Kassler, who covers water and the environment for the Sacramento Bee. Dale Kassler, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So first on this federal probe. So PG&E is subject to a subpoena that was issued last month to determine whether it was responsible for causing the Dixie Fire. What can you tell us about this? Uh, not a lot. <laughs> the uh, the n- Normally these, uh, these matters uh, the, the, are investigated at the local level, but the county district attorney, and for instance, in Shasta County, the DA has filed criminal charges against PG&E over last year's Zog fire. Uh, I'm sure your audience is aware that uh, a year ago, PG&E pleaded guilty to criminal charges in the Camp Fire in Butte County. I'm not totally sure why the federal government is getting involved. Uh, I would point out that normally uh, the, the the bottom line is this results in a fine. Uh, you, you, you'll recall the uh, the, the San Bruno case from several years ago, the, the natural gas pipeline explosion, big federal case, criminal charges, the company is still on probation, but 
all it all it ended up doing is paying pay several million dollars in fines. Right, so lots to watch there about how this will play out. I understand that PG PG and E is also under state investigation. What role do state officials think PG and E's equipment played in igniting the fire? Well, th there's no definitive conclusion yet, but Cal Fire believes that uh, PG&E power pole made contact with a tree uh, in, in the Feather River Canyon where the fire started. Um, it seems to be pretty widely acknowledged that that's what happened. PG&E more or less has said it thinks that's why it happened. Um, and basically, everybody's waiting on Cal Fire to finish its, invest its investigation, which could still take a few more months. As you said, it started in Feather River Canyon. Can you just remind us of the scale and effect of the Dixie Fire, which sparked in July? I, I said in the intro that, you know, over three months destroyed nearly a million acres. Can you just remind us how destructive it really was? Well, a million acres is the second largest fire in California history after the August complex fires of a year ago. Um, it wiped out uh, the little downtown of uh, Greenville, a little community in Plumas County, a little historic gold rush community. Um, it, and yes, it's, it's a big one. It's, it's, it's a major, major fire. It took three months to bring, uh, to bring full containment. And that's a, that's a long time. And PG&E said that it could have been averted if it had been able to trigger one of its blackouts uh, of that power line. How did that go over with state officials and the CPUC? Well, it's interesting. About two weeks after the fire started, PG&E started, uh, it dialed up the sensors on its circuit breakers uh, throughout uh, wildfire country. And it says that's been successful in uh, averting other big fires, but it's also caused uh, literally about 550 or so blackouts. Now, for the last few years, PG&E has been running these public safety blackouts with about two days warning. And those aren't very popular, but at least consumers get warning. These blackouts that have been triggered over the last few months since the Dixie fire started, uh, come without warning. They come instantaneously. Uh, the State Public Utilities Commission is angry about it. Elected officials are angry about it. So once again, PG&E trying to, to ramp up the wildfire safety uh, creates another black eye for itself. Mm. We're talking with the Sacramento Bee's Dale Kessler about a federal probe into PG&E over the cause of the Dixie Fire. As the utility said, that the wildfire cost at least a billion dollars. Dale Castle is a staff writer for the Sacramento Bee. And if you have questions about PG&E's PG role in the Dixie Fire, you can call us now, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. So let's get to that uh, estimate of losses. PG&E disclosed this week that it's facing at least a billion dollars in losses from the Dixie Fire and that that estimate is maybe on the low end. What is PG&E saying here? Well, um, they said they've, they've set the number at $1.15 billion. And what's significant about that is by crossing the billion dollar threshold, PG&E is uh, apparently eligible to participate in this state wildfire fund. 
You may recall mm -hmm. that a couple of years ago, the legislature, uh, at the urging of Governor Newsom, set up a wildfire insurance fund to help buffer the big utilities against massive losses from big wildfires. Uh, at the time, PG&E was already in Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Uh, the credit rating agencies on Wall Street were downgrading the other big utilities, Edison and San Diego Gas and Electric. And uh, the governor was concerned that the, the major utilities were, were going to be rendered insolvent, perhaps, or, or just, just incapacitated by wildfire liabilities. So the legislature set up this fund, no taxpayer money. It's uh, half shareholder dollars and half ratepayer dollars that uh, once, once the clock, once uh, the, the damages exceed a billion dollars, the insurance companies could potentially tap into. And this would be the first test of that fund. Now it's controversial. Uh, uh, consumer advocates and others have said this is just a bailout. These, these companies should fix the problems on their own. They shouldn't be able to, to hit up rate payers for any of this. And it's crazy. They're not entitled to this. But the fund is there. It's got several billion dollars. And uh, PG&E apparently is going to be first in line to draw from it. Yes, I can imagine that would be controversial. What will this mean for rate payers, do you think, Dale Kessler? Well, it's going to cost them money. It's already costing them money. Um, I'm going to dive into a little bit of ancient history here, but 20 years ago during the energy crisis, uh, the state started buying electricity for PG&E and the other big utilities because they couldn't afford to buy power on their own. Uh, and ratepayers started paying for it through a surcharge on their bill, a couple dollars a month. That surcharge was supposed to expire next year. Now it's been extended through 2035 to help pay for the state wildfire fund. So if you're a PG&E electric customer right now, your bill isn't going to go up, but your bill should have gone down by a couple dollars a month uh, with the expiration of, of this surcharge. Instead, you're going to be continuing to, uh, to be paying for this through uh, the next 14 years to help uh, bring this fund up. It's supposed to be uh, at its peak, about a $20 billion fund, billion with a B. Again, half ratepayer, half shareholder money. Well, we've got some calls from our listeners coming in. Let me go to Dan in Windsor. Hi, Dan. Hello, how are you today? I'm well, what's Thanks on your mind? Dan? Yeah, sure. Well, the thing, um, you know, we of course lived through fire um, emergencies up here in Sonoma County. Yeah. And every time we wonder, what are the actual obstacles to there being public ownership of PG&E, the power company? And, um, you know, what would that scenario be? Because a lot of times people have said, well, that'll never happen. And then someone has to move and a solution is found. And I wonder how Governor Newsom could be a leader in that, that we actually take public ownership of a company like PG&E. Big question, Dale. What do you think? Well, I mean, that question certainly was raised a couple of years ago uh, when PG&E first went into bankruptcy. And, uh, and the governor was starting to bang the drum a little bit in the fall of 2019. Uh, Dan, you may recall during the Kincaid fire, when what was it, nearly 200,000 people in Sonoma County had to evacuate. 
And there were those huge, huge wildfire safety blackouts. Uh, upwards of a million homes were being blacked out during the windstorms in October of 2019. And the governor was getting very fed up. He was casting about for, for bigger solutions. Uh, you know, we need to get new ownership for PG&E. He, he dangled the name of Warren Buffett, perhaps, as an investor, or maybe municipal ownership, some sort of a municipal entity, some of the mayors started to band together and talk about uh, uh, some sort of a municipal program that would, uh, that would somehow take control of PG&E, but it never happened. I don't think state officials, when you come right down to it, really have the stomach to take over PG&E. It's a huge enterprise. Um, and, and how do you run it? And how do you, how do you, do you carve it up? Do you have an urban PG&E and a rural PG&E? And it was just too complicated and never really went anywhere. Now, in the bankruptcy, uh, as, as one, of the, uh, one of the rules uh, imposed on PG&E during the bankruptcy, the, the governor insisted on a, on a set of protocols um, that if PG&E fails to do a, a good enough job of reducing wildfire risks, it goes into sort of an enhanced a regulatory oversight program uh, overseen by the Public Utilities Commission. In fact, they've already graduated to the first step. It's like a six step program. If they reach step six, then theoretically the state could take in, pull PG&E's license, take over the company, and then figure out what to do with it either sell it to, a, to another private player or sell it to some sort of a municipal entity. But we're several steps away from that. And frankly, Dan, I, I just don't see it happening. We're talking with Dale Kassler about PG&E's role in the Dixie Fire and the latest news about PG&E's potential liability uh, this week. Dale Kassler is a staff writer for the Sacramento Bee who covers water and the environment. He'll be with us for a few more minutes. So if you want to get your calls and questions in, 866-733-6786 is the number, the email address, forum at kqed.org. And of course, you can post them on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Stay with us. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. There's a federal probe into PG&E over the cause of the Dixie Fire, as the utility says the wildfire could cost at least a billion dollars in losses to the company. We're talking with Dale Kassler about it, staff writer for the Sacramento Bee, and you, our listeners. Let me go to David in Redwood City. Hi, David. Hi, Mina. Um, I am a doctor down here in the peninsula, and I have countless patients who are impacted by the wildfire smoke that uh, you know, comes from all these fires that PG&E has a, a part in. I'm wondering if that's a potential legal recourse for a, a class action lawsuit or something, because at the end of the day, this company uh, is, is not doing a good job. And if I go bankrupt, if I am convicted of criminal offenses, like you mentioned, PG&E has pled guilty, I can't continue to do my job in today's society. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad your, your guest brought up uh, uh, ways that that local governments and even the state government is, is maybe working to, you know, put an end to this. But I'm just wondering, what is the ultimate recourse for a company that has clearly failed? Is there competition from other companies? Is there is there a way that 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 we can sort of end this madness that uh, we're dealing with in the state for for decades now? Dale, do you think PG&E is considering those broader impacts that David is bringing up when it estimates potential losses? I think they are. Well, let me let me take that in steps. I mean, if I could, and David, thanks for the call. Um, you raised the issue of wildfire smoke, and it, it's interesting because uh, they're currently the company is facing criminal charges in Shasta County over the Zog Fire, and in Sonoma County over the 2019 Kincaid Fire, and uh, among the charges they're being that they're being accused of is. Uh, illegally emitting uh, air pollution. Um, it's not a charge that we saw in the uh, in the Butte County case and the Campfire case, to which they pleaded guilty last year. But so they are facing uh, uh, criminal charges uh, in in connection with the, the the air pollution caused by these wildfires. Again, as as I said earlier, these criminal cases tend to result in so far anyway, relatively small fines. They only paid a few million a few million dollars in the San Bruno case in that big federal trial. They paid something like four million dollars uh, uh, to Butte County in the campfire criminal case. The judge uh, in that case uh, was was lamenting from the bench that he couldn't do more. He wanted to send people to prison but he couldn't. All he could do was find them the maximum. And under the law, it was about $4 million. Now, as to your larger question of, of how, do we, how do we stop the madness? Um, I mean, PG&E, I mean, I think it transcends PG&E. Obviously, PG&E has a lot of work to do in terms of vegetation management and hardening its grid, meaning uh, uh, planting some of its wires underground and uh, putting up uh, metal poles instead of wooden poles, things like that. But there's also this little issue of climate change. Um, and not not to, to excuse PG&E or let them off the hook, but uh, by, by the company's uh, own analysis, about a decade ago, they considered about 10% or 15% of their territory to be at serious risk of wildfire. Now it's closer to 50%. And they say that's, that's a consequence of, of climate change. It's making the state drier and hotter 
and more prone to wildfire. So when you talk about stopping the madness, it's not just one company or, or any of the utilities. I think it's also the larger issue of how does California deal with climate change. And for more on that, I want to bring Chris Field into the conversation, director of the Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment, professor for interdisciplinary environmental studies at Stanford. Chris Field, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Mina. Pleasure to be here. So, you know, as federal and state investigators are trying to determine how to allocate responsibility for the fire to PG&E and others, the state, as Dale Castro is describing, is coming to terms with the fact that the mega fires we've been seeing recently are major, they're mega, but they're also even different from past wildfires, say, of a couple decades ago. Can you just talk to us a little bit about what these new wildfires are like, how they are different, and what they are telling us? Well, we really are seeing a kind of a perfect storm in terms of causal factors. As Dale has just explained, we, we know that the climate's been getting hotter and drier, and we know that the amount of extreme fire weather we're seeing has really doubled in the last four decades or so. And we also have seen the consequences of decades of forest management that's allowed highly flammable materials to accumulate so that the forests are increasingly packed with fuel that's very easy to ignite and very easy to convert to megafires. In addition, we continue to see more and more people who are living in the interface between the forest and, and urban areas and protecting life has to be a, a real consideration. The outcome of all of this is that fires have really transitioned from being uh, you know, terrible consequence disasters to, to real monsters. Uh, something like the Stixie fire really just transcended all of the traditional firefighter techniques mm. for putting a stop. Uh, the concept of a fire break doesn't really make sense when internally generated weather is lofting things like burning embers, big branches, a mile or more. It's really challenging to figure out how to get ahead of a fire like the Dixie Fire. And just to zero in on the Dixie Fire a little bit more, one of the things that uh, was also very troubling was last year's August Complex Fire, for example, is the state's largest. But the way it started was, you know, with 30 or so lightning strike ignited fires, whereas the Dixie really started from one small fire, then it merging with another small fire, and then morphing into the second largest fire in state history. Was that just hugely disturbing <laughs> to everybody who really pays attention to this? Absolutely. I think it was a terrifying indicator of the amount of fire risk that has built up. And in contrast to these complex fires, what we're seeing in the Dixie Fire is that a single ember, a single match, a single burning branch dropped anywhere can really ignite a, a new conflagration. And the, the Dixie Fire was self-propagating in a way that, that we haven't seen historically. And it's one of the reasons that the, that the new reality of wildfire fighting is so much more complex. Yes, you've been talking about the, the dry conditions, the past fire suppression efforts. I imagine the winds, as you allude to, are even another factor that seems different and more dangerous, Chris. Well, one of the things that 
happens as fires get bigger and bigger as they generate their own winds. Fire produces a tremendous amount of heat, hot air rises, pulls air in from the sides. And we really are in an era now where we're seeing fires that are big enough that we get what we call pyro weather, fire generated weather. It doesn't even matter what the regional wind conditions are doing. Of course, California does suffer from these hot, dry winds that are very common in the fall. We were incredibly fortunate this year to have a, a rainstorm that tamps down the fire danger for the rest of our rainy season. But um, internally generated winds, the drought, climate change, the fuel accumulation, all fitting together into a really terrifying picture for the future, unless we really make progress with a lot of the steps that are under consideration and spinning up now. So, of course, we began this conversation talking about PG&E, and I wonder if you could allocate responsibility in percentages, how much would you put towards the environment, towards our firefighting efforts and even our management efforts, and then to PG&E for things like the Dixie Fire? The traditional way we think about wildfire risk is that in order to get a fire, you need to have fuels, you need to have heat and you need to have an ignition event. Historically, there are lots and lots of ignitions. You know, 20, recent years, California's had anywhere from 7,000 to 10,000 wildfires. Most of them stay small. And it actually is a relatively small fraction that are started by the utilities and by PG&E. But PG&E has been involved in the ignition of a number of the most serious events, partly because the kinds of events that trigger the megafires, especially with these hot, dry autumn winds, are also the kind that knock trees into power lines or knock power lines down. And so there is a special feature of what causes big fires that puts the utilities, especially PG&E, in the crosshairs. We're talking with Chris Field, director of Stanford Woods Institute, Stanford's Woods Institute for the environment at Stanford University. And also we're talking with Dale Kassler, who I'm so glad could stay a few minutes longer, who covers water and the environment for the Sacramento Bee. We're talking about PG&E's role in the Dixie Fire and the Dixie Fire itself, what it taught us about California's ability to tackle megafires. Let me go to caller Pete in Oakland. Hi, Pete. Hi, uh, thanks, Dale, for your excellent reporting and, and you know, all the folks at KQED, too. Um, I wanted, I was wondering if uh, Dale or somebody could talk about the, the safety certificate or the, the license to burn that is currently uh, will land on Governor Newsom's desk, and I think in January. That uh, that is like, as I understand it, the governor needs to affirm that PG&E is a safe company in order for them to access that uh, bailout fund. I'm, I'm curious about that, and also the, you know, Dale, I appreciate you talking about the. The monetary slaps on the wrist that um, uh, have happened for PG&E. What, 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 like tangible, non, you know, we can just write a check for a couple million dollars. Uh, accountability mechanisms are there to transition away from a, a company that's clearly in the interest of shareholders and not actually keeping people in California safe. What, what's the pathway towards mm. that? Dale, would you like to try to tackle some of Pete's questions there? Thanks, Pete. Sure. Thank you, Pete. Um, yes, the the. That wildfire safety fund um, is not a total blank check. Uh, each year, the utilities, PG&E, and the others have to um, to receive a uh, a safety certificate from the state. Um, 
basically uh, attesting that they have a wildfire safety plan in place and so on. Um, but once they have that certificate, they are, they are considered eligible for the fund. Now, um, the, this won't go down without a fight. Uh, people can still challenge this at the Public Utilities Commission. I'm sure there will be groups coming forth and saying PG&E should not be entitled to uh, collect $150 million from that state fund to help pay for the Dixie fire. Uh, if if PG&E, I'm sorry, if the Public Utilities Commission finds that PG&E did not act prudently, then um, uh, then the, the money would not be forthcoming. PG&E would have to return the money. Uh, but on the other hand, that safety certificate creates kind of a, a, a burden of proof on, on, on a challenger to show that PG&E acted badly and that it, that it was PG&E's fault. And not only was it PG&E's fault, but that they were reckless, they were not careful and so on. Um, so it's interesting and it's probably gonna take a couple of years to, to hash out as to what happens uh, with, the, with that money. Now, you, you talked about sort of the, the slap on the wrist dollars and so on. You know, PG&E was driven into bankruptcy by the campfire and the 2017 fires in, in, the, uh, in the wine country. And it cost them you know, upwards of $20 billion to get out of bankruptcy. Uh, $20 billion charged to, to the company's shareholders. Um, I would argue that's not really a slap on the wrist. Um, that doesn't bring people, that doesn't uh, you know, that doesn't give people their lives back and then so on. I'm not saying all, all's fair, but, uh, you know, so there are real consequences. These criminal cases, we make a big deal out of them. Everybody gets all excited. They, and it's certainly a, a black eye for the company, but they don't generate a, a lot of financial pain. But uh, civil, civil costs, can be quite high. And, uh, and in, in the case of uh, the campfire and the, the other big fires of 2017, again, PG&E had to shell out billions of dollars. So given that, Dale, as you say, PG&E emerged from bankruptcy just last year. It's talking about estimating its potential losses at 1.15 billion, I think was the number that you said there. It does play a very important role, a pivotal role in our ability to be able to access power. Can the company absorb losses of that magnitude? Yes, they can. Uh, I mean, keep in mind, you know, if they get some help from the state wildfire fund, they also have insurance that'll, that'll cover a good chunk of this. Um, uh, you know, there are other, there are other means for, for them to do this. So yeah, this is not, this billion dollars is not small, but it's not going to drive them back into bankruptcy, if that's what you're getting at. Well, one last question. Yeah, one last question from our audience before you need to leave us. George in San Leandro. Go right ahead, George. Oh, hi. I enjoyed this show. It's really interesting. My question is uh, to Dale, uh, what is the financial relationship between PG&E and uh, Governor Newsom and his campaign funds and and uh, uh, financial uh, tie there. Uh, there have been campaign donations. PG&E, like like other big corporations, gives to the governor and other elected officials. Uh, he's been asked about it, and he says it doesn't affect what I'm doing. 
Um, you know, you can feel free to judge for yourself uh, whether or not campaign donations influence uh, how our elected officials uh, behave. Uh, when he, he, you know, in twenty in twenty nineteen, when he uh, persuaded the legislature to create this wildfire fund. He said, this isn't about bailing out PG&E. This is about stabilizing the finances of all of the state's big electric utilities because the other companies, San Diego Gas and Electric and Southern California Edison were kind of being uh, painted with the same broad brush by Wall Street. Their credit ratings were being downgraded. It was making it harder for them to borrow money to, 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 to run their business. So, the governor says that was his interest. His interest was in creating a, a stable and responsible and sustaining uh, uh, electrical grid going forward, not just bailing out PG&E. We're talking about PG&E's role in the Dixie Fire and California's ability to tackle mega fires like the Dixie Fire. We're talking with Dale Kassler, who covers water and the environment for the Sacramento Bee, and also Chris Field, director of the Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford University. There's just one quick follow-up question here. Chris asks, Dale, in recent weeks, there was a story about PG&E shareholders receiving a payout and walking from the liabilities from the latest set of fires. Is there a story here? What is the story here? Well, it was actually a KQED story, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> uh, she did a good job. Um, uh, it has to do with uh, uh, hedge funds that received stock uh, via the bankruptcy settlement from, from last year, uh, then going out and unloading their shares. And what makes that all relevant is that that I, I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago that uh, uh, wildfire victims are going to be paid something like $13 billion uh, to, to cover their losses from the campfire and the Tubbs fire and the others. And that that was the big bankruptcy settlement. Now they're getting this money through a trust fund that's been set up by PG&E and the fund is, is financed half in cash and half in PG&E stock. The victims themselves won't actually receive stock. The trust fund is gonna sell shares to raise cash. But basically the payout to victims depends on PG&E's stock price staying, uh, staying high. Yes, well, our gratitude to Lily Jamali for her reporting on that and my gratitude to you, Dale, for being able to stay a bit longer. Dale of the Sacramento Bee, more on Megafires after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the Dixie Fire this hour. First, we talked about PG&E's potential role in causing the Dixie Fire. And we're turning to talk more about California's ability to tackle megafires like the Dixie Fire. We have Chris Field with us, director of the Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford University. And joining us now is Kelly Martin, president of the Grassroots Wildland Firefighters, an advocacy group, and also Kelly Martin is retired chief of fire and aviation at Yosemite National Park. Kelly Martin, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Nina. I appreciate the invite. And for our listeners who have questions about the Dixie Fire or about the state's ability to manage megafires like the Dixie, you can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. And Kelly Martin, one of the things that has come up and even Chris alluded to before the break was just how the Dixie Fire in many ways challenged traditional understandings of what are effective firefighting strategies because of so many reasons. But uh, wondering if you could just first begin by giving us a better understanding of, of what the core strategies are for attacking large, fast-moving fires like the Dixie. Thanks, Mina. Uh, there's a significant uh, commitment of resources on, on these large fires. And, it, and there's a note here of thinking about California as, the, as being uh, born and bred to burn. So think about the fact that California has gone from 1.5 million um, in population in 1900 to almost 40 million right now. So it's becoming increasingly difficult, you know, to operate in an environment that was born and bred to burn. And now we have all these people and homes and development um, that's in this, this environment that, that's meant to burn. Um, if you were to take a snapshot or a photo from space and look at all the large fire footprints in California over the last 50 years, you are gonna to begin to see a picture that emerges of these areas that haven't burned and or don't have these large fire footprints of what's likely to burn in the next 50 years. Now, in the meantime, here we are 2020 and 21, really trying to tackle some of the biggest fires uh, in California's history uh, with uh, uh, people and helicopters and, and air tankers. Uh, and it's really a very, very significant investment in, in trying to anticipate, you know, where this fire is going to go, what community it's going to threaten. Does that community have uh, in place fuels reduction work? Um, do they comply with um, uh, codes that really uh, help them withstand a wildfire? So the assessment, once a large wildfire begins, uh, really begins with the incident management team that's managing these fires. And behind that is thousands of firefighters, you know, federal, state, municipal firefighters, uh, really trying to look where, where we're going to have opportunities to remove the forward spread of these large fires. And it's getting more and more difficult uh, because uh, we have a lot of acres that haven't burned yet in California that normally would have burned in the last hundred years. And what is a burnout operation? You talked about that as one of the tactics that started to, that's being employed, but that is also a bit controversial. 
Yeah, you know, I've been using that tactic. Um, I've been working on incident management teams with, with uh, large California wildfires for 15 years. And it's absolutely a very effective tool. When I was working at Yosemite, we had the Ferguson fire that was starting into the park. And we knew that we could effectively apply about 14 miles of a firing operation along what was called the Wawona Road to actually help that fire, the, uh, the indirect um, firing operation, work its way down the hill at night because the temperatures are, are much cooler. There's very little wind. The relative humidity is higher. So the environmental conditions to do firing operations at night along an area where we're being told this fire is gonna go here from fire behavior analysts. So rather than allowing a huge head fire to come up these drainages, what we're trying to do is to remove the understory and make a black line um, with, uh, with firefighters that, that use fire that will pull it down the slope. And when the main fire does hit that, that burnout operation, it doesn't, <clears throat> excuse me, it doesn't have any fuel to burn through. And the reason this is controversial is because it just feels like you're creating more fire initially, even if it's strategic. Correct. You know, there's a lot of people that think that firefighters can go and should go direct. And we know that that's not good ground for firefighters in a lot of ways. It's very, it can be very, very unsafe. Um, we're putting a lot of people in harm's way. So what we really do have to do is look at um, what we call indirect fire attack. Uh, and be able to contain these wires, these fires in an indirect way. And so the, the controversy is, is that there's a lot of people thinking that, you know, we're doing prescribed burning, you know, because we don't have, you know, the ability to do prescribed burning when it's, it's favorable, when the conditions are favorable. And that's simply not the case. What we are doing is giving firefighters um, good ground. Um, we do um, uh, large assessments of um, this isn't indiscriminate by any means. This is definitely planned. And we're looking at where the good ground is for the firefighters. Then we work with the fire ecologists and the fire behavior analysts and operations section chief to say, yes, in fact, this is a good tactic to try to keep the fire from moving further up the slope and or creating a large head fire where, as we know, these large fires now want a spot way out in front of, in front of the main fire. So it really is very, very imperative for us to create this, this black line, if you will, so the fire actually stops and slows. Yeah, the New York Times did an in-depth look at the Dixie Fire, described thousands of personnel, hundreds of bulldozers, aircraft, and so on, and calculated that officials spent more than $610 million over three months on the Dixie Fire. Can you talk about what are the most expensive aspects of trying to fight this? Is it aircraft? You know, it really is a combination of um, personnel. So we have a lot of um, federal personnel, you know, from the U.S. Forest Service, Bureau of Land Management, uh, Park Service, Fish and Wildlife, and um, Bureau of Indian Affairs. Those are the federal firefighters. Then we also have the state firefighters, which is, you know, Cal Fire. And then we also have a number of municipal fire departments that also come in. So personnel costs are, are significant, especially when you have such a large fire footprint. And these people are trying as best they can to protect life and property. Then we also have very large air tankers. Those are a significant costs. They have been going up in the, in the um, uh, current environment as well. Uh, and then contracts, you know, we have, we hire um, uh, caterers to provide food for the, the, uh, the firefighters. 
Um, so there's a there's a, a large cost associated with that. So all these things kind of combined, you know, for a three month period of time, um, really has a significant impact on the on the on the total cost, you know, of the of the incident. Chris, you have talked about yes, the total cost in terms of hard dollars, but also the costs to these firefighting efforts potentially on the environment and then also just broader costs that are not taken into consideration with regard to fires generally. Can you talk a little bit about what you meant by that and what you want to call attention to as you're hearing Kelly describe some of the ways that firefighters have tried to get a handle on these massive fires? Well, Kelly presents a a really clear picture of of what the suppression costs are, really important amounts. And we spoke earlier about PG&E's estimate of just over a billion dollars of liability for the Dixie Fire. Recent analyses have tried to figure out what the broader costs of California wildfires are. And there's a really nice analysis from a group at UC Irvine that was published last year uh, about the 2018 fires. And, And they concluded that the 2018 fires, which had direct capital losses that are estimated around $30 billion, those fires probably had an overall impact on the economy of about $150 billion. 30 billion of these capital losses, the, the health costs that we talked about earlier, really significant, probably the same order, around 30 billion. And then around 90 billion of indirect losses. The tourism drops off, restaurants don't operate, local business activities slow way down. And in the 2018 fires, a really substantial fraction of these indirect losses, about half, weren't even in California. They were losses that were transmitted essentially through the economy to other parts of the country. And I think that that ratio of maybe something like a fifth of the total costs being these direct losses, and the other four fifths being much more indirect, much more distributed through the economy and impacting you know, not only economic activity, but also people's lives and health. We're talking with Chris Field, director of Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford University, and Kelly Martin, president of the Grassroots Wildland Firefighters Group. And you, our listeners, are here as well. Let me bring Kevin from Santa Barbara into the conversation. Hi, Kevin. You had a question. Yeah, well, I just wanted to uh, convey what a United States Department of Forestry spokesman told the community of Cambria, where I used to live just north here of Santa Barbara, an area that hasn't burned in over 100 years and is surrounded by dead pine forest because of the pitch pine bark beetle. Uh, You know, this whole idea of the defensible space around communities or around people's houses, most people have it backwards. The defensible space is there to protect the forest from human activity. Uh, You know, his statement was, your house is going to burn and all of these uh, fire prevention methods, including interior sprinkler systems for residences, merely buy you time to get out and evacuate. We need to rethink how we're building houses here in California and start using non-flammable materials and get away from stick and paper construction and start using concrete and mortar and stucco and metal and 
I'm, you know, it's it's insane the way we're thinking here in California that we can suppress these fires. We need to do some real control and some real thinking about new communities that are interfacing with the wildlands that are going to burn. Uh, Kevin, thanks. Let me get Chris's thoughts on that and how these recent mega fires are in, informing the kinds of practices that Kevin is talking about, Chris. Well, Kevin makes a good point that there is a lot that can be done in improving the resilience of communities, and it's a critical part of California's Wildfire and Forest Resilience Action Plan. I think the critical thing is to look at a kind of a uh, all-in strategy. Uh, community hardening can make a lot of difference. Uh, defensible space is an important component of that. Warehouses are located. The building materials can make a lot of difference. Non-combustible materials are really important. Uh, simply the way that homeowners manage their land, whether there are you know, lumber piles close to structures makes a, makes a huge difference. But community hardening also makes sense in the context of a bigger plan where we're also looking at fuel reduction over wider areas and where we're looking at making sure that there's appropriate access for emergency response crews so that the fire suppression efforts can be effective. And I think when we start looking at this holistic picture, then we can really begin to get a handle on the wildfire risk. We're talking about the Dixie Fire and California's ability to tackle mega fires like it. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, Bill writes, a few years ago, there was a report that there were 20 million acres overloaded with fuel. But since then, that's been reduced by several million the hard way, rather than by prescribed burns or clearing out the underbrush and dead trees. Once that land has been burned over or cleared, won't the danger of future fires be reduced? Danger of future fires be reduced? Chris Field, sounds like a good one for you. Yes. In fact, one of the things that made a difference in the final suppression of the Dixie Fire is that the fire began running into old fire scars or into areas that had been subjected to prescribed burns. But it's also important to remember that as Kelly has already described, California was kind of designed to burn and, and many of California's uh, low elevation forest ecosystems had historic low intensity fires every five to 10 years. We have about 20 million acres of that kind of forest. And if we're going to have a 10-year fire or treatment, fuel reduction treatment intervention, we ought to be looking at a couple of million acres per year. So we have a long-term ongoing commitment that we're going to have to make to managing these forests if we're going to keep the fire danger tamped down. Uh, catastrophic fire is certainly one way to tamp down the future danger for a few years, but it doesn't last very long. We really need to make an ongoing investment in managing forests so that they provide the ecosystem services that we need without unacceptable levels of fire risk. Let me go to caller Mundo in Sonoma. Hi, Mundo, am I saying your name right? Yes, you are. Can you hear me? I can, go right ahead. Yeah, I was, you know, I, I was uh, studying uh, for a master's degree down in Southern California back in the early 2000s when they had all the big fires down there <clears throat> and like the Grand Prix fire and all that stuff. And then uh, moved up here to Sonoma and experienced the glass fire, the Kincaid fire, all that stuff. And then it turns out the nuns fire burned in the exact same burn pattern it did in the 30s and the 60s. So 
all this talk about we're going to solve the problem, I have very little faith in that. Everyone knew this stuff was coming, and everybody sat on their hands. And it was too expensive for PG&E to underground their utilities, blah, blah, blah. And, and here we are. Everybody mm-hmm. knew this was going to happen. Well, that's it. <laughs> I don't think you're alone in in feeling that way. Kyle writes to me, it feels absurd to lay this at PG&E's feet. The forests are so overgrown. People are practically living inside an unlit fire bomb. bomb. We have just a couple minutes of the show left, but I want to put a question to each of you, Kelly, from a firefighter's perspective. We were talking about costs, and I, I do wonder just about the costs, the sustainability uh, for firefighting, uh, you know, the cost from a human perspective. If you could just speak to that quickly, especially as there are so many concerns about the increasing frequency intensity of fires in the state. Yeah, you're starting to hear people now talk about fire years, not just fire seasons. And imagine for a moment that our existing federal wildland fire workforce was really developed 50 years ago. I started 35 years ago and the fires that I experienced 35 years ago are nothing like we're seeing now. It's exponentially greater. And and so the the mental and physical and emotional toll that is being borne by our federal wildland firefighters is extreme. Uh, So this is a real uh, significant um, effort as part of grassroots is to really look at what what can we do moving forward and we know we still have a lot of work to do with increasing the pace and scale of, of active uh, landscape uh, management, but we yeah. can't do that with the existing workforce. And so it's having a really a significant impact on our workforce. Imagine that these young folks are, they go out on these large fires, they go home for two or three days and they turn around, they come right back. So they don't see their families for almost six months out of the year. Uh, and then they're in extreme working conditions. They sleep on, you know, in tents and on the side of the hill. Uh, and so that needs to change. And, and we really have to think about what the next 50 years, you know, looks like for modern reforms. And that's why we're working with the, uh, the House um, Committee right now on natural resources to introduce um, TIMS Act, which would increase the, the, uh, the pay, the benefits, and the classification of um, firefighters that brings federal firefighters on parity with the state and municipal fire departments in California. And Chris, in 10 seconds, just the most immediate short-term thing that the state or Fed needs to do. We just need to make a big commitment to forest management. We need to pay more people to be managing forests to decrease the fire risk. Chris Field of Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment. Kelly Martin, retired chief of fire and aviation at Yosemite National Park. Thanks to both of you. Thanks to Tina Lauerberg for producing this segment. And thanks, as always, to our listeners. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.